You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Folks, welcome to another episode of the Bible for Normal People. And for this episode, which is my last solo episode of this year of season two, I'd like to talk about a blog post on the Gospel Coalition website, and it made the rounds about maybe two, three weeks ago as I'm recording this, and a number of people have asked me what I thought about it. The post is called Three Beliefs Some Progressive Christians and Atheists Share, and it's written by Alyssa Childers, who is a former CCM artist, and you know, she's been on her own journey of faith, trying to work things out as we all are. And here's the gist of the blog post. This is my summation of it. Progressive Christians and atheists are sort of unknowingly aligned. They, they share three beliefs, or as she says in the title, some of them share these three beliefs that are out of alignment with correct Christian thinking. More important, even though the blog post makes some effort to steer away from this conclusion, it's pretty clear to me from the rhetoric of the post that it makes the case for a trajectory from progressive Christianity to atheism. And in fact, you know, a subtext of the post seems to be that atheism is a more honest position than progressive Christianity. So, that really struck me. And then people started asking me what my thoughts were about this claim. And I know many who struggle in, in this world that the blog post represents and her looking for language to think differently about what it means to be Christian. And so, I found myself formulating a response. But, you know, still I ask myself, why? You know, why respond to this blog post on the Gospel Coalition website when I, you know, to be frank, find much of what is posted there to be misguided, unwise, or, or missing some crucial pieces of the puzzle? I could spend a lot of time responding to their posts, but I don't. So, why now? Why this? Well, it's exactly because of the responses that I've gotten from people who have suffered great spiritual damage and harm from the kind of thinking represented in this post. And I very often find myself in the position of having to help some of these people put the pieces together, to help them see that leaving their fundamentalism does not mean they have left the faith entirely. And blog posts like this one, even if they're intended to encourage people to have or to hold on to their faith, in my experience, they do more to encourage people to leave the faith. And so, I wanted to respond. Well, let me say right away that my response has nothing to do really with the author, Alyssa Childers. I don't know her. I, I actually respect her journey. She's had her own process of moving from a place of 
I think she would say simple fundamentalist faith to a period of doubt in her 30s, and then moving beyond that to what she feels as a more robust faith. And I have to respect her journey as a sister, as I want others to respect the different kind of journeys that others take. So, throughout these little comments I'm going to make, I, I want to refer to her as Alyssa by her first name, and that's not out of disrespect, but it's more of an acknowledgement that we're, you know, sort of all in this together at the end of the day. And, and using last names and saying, you know, the author, it just sounds detached and almost dehumanizing, and I don't want to put up those kinds of walls or barriers. I think there's enough of that going around. I may also say, in fact, I'm sure I will say things like, fundamentalism, which I use as a descriptive category, not a pejorative or negative category. It's simply a way of talking about a certain cluster of ideas that some Christians hold as non-negotiable for Christian faith, and that cluster of ideas together is normally called fundamentalism. Or I will at times broaden the focus to include the gospel coalition as a whole, for this is the, the institution, the, the system that aids and abets posts like this one, and for that reason is much more of a problem for me than what one person expresses on a topic. But this isn't a go-after-anybody piece. This isn't a takedown piece. This is more trying to look at something and take it apart a little bit and examine some things that are too often left unexamined, to, to expose and to bring to light some things that are too often left buried a little bit beneath the surface, which are the very things I feel that make this post for me very, very problematic from a pastoral point of view. Now, I know that's going to sound ridiculous for some listeners who have an affection for what Alyssa is saying, but still my main concern here is a pastoral one. I'm not playing an academic game of who wins the debate. So, as I said, Alyssa, she, no, she's on her own journey, and I respect that. And as she says on her website, which I was able to prove, she speaks of a, of a moment in her early 30s from, and I think a lot of people can connect with this, where she moves from an unreasonable state of doubt, a doubt that's rooted in a lack of knowledge, to a more, I think her words are, an intellectually informed faith. And I get that. I understand it. But one thing I'm after here is whether this is necessarily the problem that has to be fixed, whether doubt is necessarily the problem that has to be fixed. Doubt may be a signal from God that your thinking process has gone off the rails and you need to find something else. And also, is landing on an intellectually informed faith, as Alyssa puts it, really a step forward, or is it more of the same thing that caused the doubts in the first place? Just a few more clever patches sewn onto the old garment. The people I deal with live in that tension. All right, all right so here's what's going to happen. First, I want to give a quick overview of the blog post itself. And, you know, obviously, I encourage you to read it. Don't take my word for it. And I just want to mention the three points that Alyssa is making. Then I want to move to what I see as uh, the premises of the article, the the underlying assumptions that are being made that are I find deeply problematic and that are the very things that actually need to be debated, not simply asserted as a starting point. And then we'll look at something I'd rather not have to look at, but I think it's important, and that is the rhetoric of the piece itself, which is probably the most damaging part of this blog post as far as I'm concerned. And then I'd like to move to looking at those three points 
that Alyssa engages in the blog post and, and just a little bit more depth, making a few more comments, getting into it a little bit uh, on a deeper level. And then I want to conclude with my overall summation of the problems of this blog post and then suggest a different posture to take that's more beneficial, I think, intellectually, and again, above all, pastorally, I would even say biblically. So first, the three points of the blog post, and these are, I think, pretty familiar ones to anyone who has struggled with faith. The first point is that progressives and atheists both adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable, or, you know, again, to be fair to Alyssa's wording, they both may adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable. The potential unreliability of the Bible is a major concern for fundamentalism with its strict commitment to biblical inerrancy. And so, when that's questioned, then one's Christian faith is soon called into question. I would say, judging from my experience, that a failure to uphold inerrancy is the core concern for fundamentalism. It's the problem from which all other problems stem and I think it's good for Alyssa to list this as the first of the three. The second point is more of a philosophical matter that we probably all kick around at some point in our lives, the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen? Why doesn't God do something about this? Why is there so much needless death? Why is there so much suffering? Where's God when you need him, right? I mean, that's the problem of evil in a nutshell, and it's absolutely something that drives people away. And the third point that Alyssa talks about is how morality today has become, in progressive Christian circles, more influenced by culture than simply adhering strictly to biblical teaching, which is back to the first point about the Bible. So, those are the three points, and the solution that's offered, which we'll get into in more detail, is essentially, if I can say, a bunker mentality to hold fast, don't change, don't waver. Hold on to, quote, the gospel no matter what. Don't let culture affect you. Don't let any of this affect you. The solution to progressive Christianity is essentially not to be progressive, but to fall back to the old-time religion, so to speak, which has really answered all these questions for us, and we just need to know what those answers are. And I know for myself, that is deeply unsatisfying intellectually and spiritually, as it is for many other people. The three points Alyssa mentions are very good points, and I do think they, that there are resemblances, commonalities between progressive Christians and atheists on these problems. What is not being addressed, however, is that, you know, just think about this, though these two groups share these same general observations, they still address them very differently. That's why you've got people who are still Christian working through this. All right, we'll get to all that. You know, we're still in the intro section here, folks, so just chill with me, okay, maybe get a sandwich. <sighs> anyway, okay, so those are the three points. Now, let's look at the premises. And I've, as I said before, the premises are the very things that need to be debated. This is where the discussion has to happen, not on the level of verse wars, but on the level of premises. And here's one premise that I think is very important and problematic. The blog post makes a claim and even if a claim is not to make it, it's making it, and it's this. As I said before, there is a trajectory from progressive Christianity to atheism. It, you know, the argument is sort of like, well, look at progressives and atheists. They hold so many things in common. All you need to do is give these progressives a little kick to go from being a progressive Christian to a, quote, full-blown atheist. 
And I want to push back here rather significantly. That's not my experience at all. I don't really know people who are progressive and that progressivism leads them to atheism. I mean, that may happen, but I can just say I know many more people who are committed to their faith who are progressive. Much more common in the world that I move in is people who have become atheists because of the kind of thinking displayed in this blog post. The fundamentalist model of faith drives home again and again that it's their way or the highway. And if you've been having questions about that, your only other option, well, is atheism. I don't know if fundamentalists really have a sense of what they are contributing to the problem. It's not progressives who are causing the move to atheism, but fundamentalists who are causing the move to either progressive Christianity or atheism. Think about it this way. Why is it that progressive Christians and atheists share a certain set of concerns concerning the Bible or the problem of evil or the influence of culture on Christian faith? Well, because they're seeing the same problem with fundamentalism. Okay, fine. But why are there progressives at all? Not because they're weak-kneed or they, they missed the last you know, apologetic seminar or something like that, but because they are still people of deep faith. I think that's worth acknowledging. Rather than lumping together these two groups as both wrong because they reject fundamentalism, progressive Christians should be acknowledged, really, as people who are trying to follow Jesus in their own way. And not because they feel like rebelling against Jesus, but because the model that's been championed in their lives in blog posts like this, it hasn't been able to explain the world that they live in. And not because they weren't alert to the, you know, fundamentalism's latest argument or something like that, but because they were, and it still didn't make sense. So, I think fundamentalism can breed actually three things. One is a progressive or different kind or form of Christianity. It also breeds atheism, and it breeds a third thing, which is where I think Alyssa finds herself a reinvigorated fundamentalism, which... I have to say, I feel, and based on my own experience, given a little time and another set of arguments, will eventually trigger another faith crisis. Anyway, back to my main point. The premise here is that progressive Christianity really leads to atheism, right? That's the premise. And in fact, there's really nothing to keep you from sliding over to atheism. That's only true if you hold the view that fundamentalism is the true form of Christianity. So, I reject that premise. So, another premise is the claim to be speaking for so-called historic Christianity. And I have to say, this is bordering on being rather naive about the history of Christianity. I know it's nice to be able to say, well, what I believe today is the pure faith that has always been the true faith handed down from the beginning of Christianity. But students of Christian history will put that notion to rest very quickly. Christian faith is actually tremendously diverse. You know, not anything goes, but still, you know, many things go. And so, which historic Christian faith are we talking about? Which shade of Roman Catholicism, of Orthodoxy, or which of the myriad of Protestant denominations? Or is historic Christianity simply what the Gospel Coalition claims it is? I think not. Christians have been thinking about the Christian faith in different settings, at different times, under different circumstances. And this is why you have such a breadth of theology. This is why you have literally thousands of Christian denominations all putting the pieces together differently, 
And I got to tell you, my hackles go up just a little bit when I hear anyone claiming to speak for the historic Christian faith on anything. That claim also presumes a permanence where true faith doesn't ever move or change, and we'll get back to that later. But when someone claims the authority of historic Christianity for themselves as a way of casting aspersions on others, they should be challenged every single time that's brought up. Another premise is that the evangelical faith is intellectually robust. It's covered the bases. Sure, occasionally it might need a nip and tuck, a new angle perhaps on an old argument, but the evangelical faith is intellectually robust and it stands tall and strong. The problem I have with this premise is that I, I think it doesn't account for the massive intellectual challenges that confront evangelicalism that many people are talking about, namely former evangelicals. I mean, why do you have a Rachel Held Evans, a Jen Hatmaker, a Mike McCarg, Rob Bells, and others running around? Why do people like this exist? They're not just getting up out of bed one day and saying, you know, I'm going to rebel. I'm sort of bored. I need something to do today. Let's just deconstruct Christianity. You know, there's a mass of disaffected evangelicals and fundamentalists out there. This is happening in the academic community too. You know, for example, why is it so common that evangelical churches and institutions send, you know, their best and brightest to do doctoral work at major prestigious, let's call them secular research institutions, and while they're there, Despite their robust evangelical training, while they're there, they actually change because they learn ways of looking at the Bible, like how was it composed and when, and they learn ways that make more sense of those questions than what they've been taught that they have to hold on to in their previous education. See, the problem here is not with those who are going out, academic or otherwise, but with those who are going out and learning different things and changing their minds on some issues. Rather, seeing real intellectual problems with the evangelical paradigm, they're, they're finding better answers elsewhere. See, what really strikes me here in this premise is a tone deafness to the degree of intellectual isolation within the evangelical movement. In, in fact, not to be too cynical, but it's actually the intellectual isolation that's needed to make the evangelical system work. Of course, you can have arguments for remaining as one was, or perhaps for returning to a reinvigorated fundamentalism, as Alyssa has. But the arguments for doing so only really make sense within that insulated world. And I find that a problem. Now, of course, I'm aware that Alyssa and others could appeal to scholarly champions on their side who are very educated and still hold to conservative views, which is true. But let me suggest something here. Do they hold these views because they are smart and educated? Or might it be that their education allows them to find more subtle or sophisticated ways of holding on to those beliefs? You know, I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who, say, is an inerrantist because their academic training took them there. But I have known many whose smarts enable them to construct all sorts of arguments with footnotes and Greek and Hebrew to hold on to, say, inerrancy that do not follow from their training but happen despite their training. 
Uh, my guest uh, on this podcast and also colleague, Ken Sparks, wrote a book a few years ago called God's Word and Human Words that document this tendency pretty specifically. Anyway, you know, my point here is don't assume that just because someone is smart that they arrive at their beliefs through the use of their intellect. That is the modernist lie, if I can say. Neuroscientists, which I have to say I know next to nothing about, but I've done some reading and I know people who know stuff about this. Neuroscientists have been telling us now for some time that it's really our experience and our intuition that guide what we think and what we believe. And this intellectual analytical side comes in after the fact as a way to buttress what we believe. See, what we believe and why we believe it may have to do a lot more with our social location, our tribe, as they say, than apologetics. I think this is what makes us human. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, anyway, back to the premise that evangelicalism is an intellectually robust faith that stood the test of time, that it just needs some tweaking. Well, that's simply not in line with my experience and the experience of many others, and it should not go unchallenged. Okay, listen, enough about premises. Let's move on to the rhetoric of the piece. 
I want to draw this issue out because I see here common tactics, even if they're not consciously deployed, but still tactics that, too, that are too prevalent in theological discourse. And I think this is across the board, by the way. And that never really convince anyone of anything. And in fact, I think they're more meant to ensure that the protective wall remains thick and sound. So, some examples, and I think, again, this is very much the heart of where I have problems with posts like this. So, for example, Alyssa is very quick to raise the specter of famous deconvert Bart Campolo, Bart's father, Tony. He's a friend of mine. I teach with Tony at Eastern University, and I know this story pretty well. And for what it's worth, I, you know, I think Bart has made some missteps in how he processed some issues. But that's not the point. The point is that bringing Bart Campolo up at all is really a manipulative tactic to say, hey, listen, here's a guy whose dad is this progressive evangelical, and look where it got him. This is where you or your children or your friends are heading. You know, I, I deal with people all the time who, as I've said before, are moving to atheism because of their fundamentalist upbringing. And I could give anecdote after anecdote of people who have not done what Bart Campolo has done, but have, have a renewed faith because they have left fundamentalism. So, you know, which, which stories shall we listen to? Now, this is really a scare tactic. And for me, it's just like one level up from a chick track. Remember those? Uh, so, I don't think this tactic is helpful. And I get, again, I don't think that was necessarily intentional on Alyssa's part. But still, there you have it, and this is a very common way of arguing. A second bit of rhetoric that I'd like to do away with forever, and here, to be clear, Alyssa is not to blame for this, nor is the Gospel Coalition, but it's the use of the word progressive. I really don't like it. I'm much more with Brian McLaren, for example, and I think I'm going to get his vocabulary right. Instead of progressive, he'd rather call them creative types. And... He'd rather call fundamentalists or non-progressives, he'd rather call them preservationists. And, and I like that language because it's not as polarizing. So, a creative type is someone oriented toward the present and future of faith. You know, hey, listen, we have this faith rooted in the past, but how do we engage our world today and how do we prepare the, for the future of humanity by engaging this ancient text and ancient tradition? Preservationists tend to think more about, well, preserving the tradition to ensure that we stay tied very closely to it. The tendency will be to think first of, you know, how is this different from the past? And if it's too different, we're just going to nix it. Now, the point that, that Brian McLaren makes and that I agree with is that these two approaches of doing theology, they actually coexist. I mean, creative types are still always engaging the tradition to preserve it. And so, they haven't just said, well, I'm done with the tradition entirely. They're actually trying to engage the past creatively for the moment. And in a minute, I want to get into how the Bible itself models for us this very creative posture. But preservationists say, well, listen, we have to remember there is a tradition here that needs to be sustained. Yes, I actually agree completely. But even the strong preservationists have to have some type of creative dimension, if anything, because we're not living in the Iron Age or first century Palestine. See, these two outlooks are not mutually exclusive. That's my point. That's Brian's point. 
In fact, they may actually need each other. I think if we stopped to reflect on this for a minute, we would see that preservationists have a creative dimension and creative types have a preservationist dimension. I think what we have to do for the sake of theological integrity is actually embrace that dynamic and not choose one over the other. I'd go so far as to say that a tradition dies if that dynamic is not embraced. But with respect to the word progressive, I think it's a polarizing term. And I know that it's used as a self-designation for progressives, which is part of the problem and why I don't blame Alyssa or the Gospel Coalition for using it, but I'd like to leave it aside. Okay, a third bit of rhetoric is the continued and unfortunate use of the phrase deconversion to describe a faith transition out of fundamentalism. People whose faith is shifting have not left the faith. So, for example, you have Jen Hatmaker being mentioned, or the Gungers, especially Lisa Gunger, in the same breath as Bart Campolo or Derek Webb. And if you're not familiar with them, just read the blog post and you'll see. I think this is a heinous tactic that tells us a lot more about the critic than those criticized. Alyssa even links another Gospel Coalition blog post written by Michael Kruger a few months back that made the same facile equation that shifting faith is to deconvert, and something that my esteemed co-host from this podcast, Jared Bias, responded to very effectively, but that Alyssa wasn't aware of or maybe felt it wasn't worthy of engagement. I want to be direct here. Saying that people who are shifting their faith are actually deconverting from the faith, this type of rhetoric is slanderous and it lacks wisdom. Jen and Lisa are not deconversion stories, but stories of spiritual maturation, or maybe, again, as Brian McLaren would put it, spiritual migration, or, or reconversion. Bart Campolo and Derek Webb are not. Lumping them into one category is a scare tactic. It also rests on the premise that we mentioned earlier that the Gospel Coalition and its bloggers simply as a matter of fact, represent the one true faith, and to diverge from it is to have no faith. And I think this just needs to stop in Jesus' name. Hey, normal people, Pete here. Just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon for as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee. You'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits, and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So thank you to Brock Beasley, Nathan Kitchen, Denise Howard, Bob Faby, Josh Levinson, Chrissy Florence, Caleb Needens, Michelle Snyder, Shay Box, and Greg Ballou. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the podcast. The fourth uh, bit of rhetoric is the title itself. Three beliefs some progressive Christians and atheists share. Now, I really do actually appreciate how Alyssa is at least trying to pull back from making absolute claims, which we also see in the subheadings like, you know, progressives and atheists may adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable. Having said that, I think at the end of the day, this is just putting lipstick on a pig. 
See, it gives the appearance of fair and open-mindedness, you know, when you say things like some or many. But at the end of the day, the point made is still polarizing, and that's certainly the tone of the piece throughout. And you see that most clearly when you get to the last subheading of the blog post itself, which is entitled, Atheists in the Making? Question mark. In other words, are progressives atheists in the making? And I appreciate the question mark, but you can't feign civility hiding behind the question mark when what you're clearly saying throughout is that progressive Christianity is atheism in the making. It's not a question. It's a fact from the point of view of the blog post. And I know that because of the fifth bit of rhetoric where the post ends by aligning progressive Christians not just with atheists, but with wait for it, the serpent in the garden of Genesis. If I may, here is how the post ends. Quoting Lissa, After all, the contemporary views that many people call, quote, progressive, aren't progressive anyway. They're very old. Echoes of that primordial question, did God really say? Genesis 3.1. Signs of the most wicked rebellion imaginable. And we all know where that ends up. See, to say you are in league with Satan is the ultimate conversation stopper in any sort of discussion when it comes to theological differences. And I think this rhetoric is effective for scoring points, to be sure. But to put it mildly, it is a spiritually irresponsible way of dealing with people of faith that hold the faith that you disagree with. I deal, as I'm sure many of you do, I deal with people all the time who are walking about wearing the scars of this type of rhetoric from church leaders. And I wonder if those who use so freely this kind of rhetoric, they realize the kind of spiritual and emotional damage it does to be told, hey, you're in line with Satan with that view. I think this grieves the Spirit of God, and I'm just going to say cut it out. Leave it out of your vocabulary entirely. All right, so those are the rhetorical moves that I see in this blog post. And again, I, I don't really know how intentional they always are. I think this sort of thing is just baked into the system. You know, speaking like this is necessary because when someone feels the gospel is at stake, fear and manipulation spring into action. But now, very briefly, let's move to something else. I want to touch in a tad bit more detail on the three points of the article that I mentioned earlier. Okay, the first concerns how progressives and atheists fail to hold on to the Bible's reliability. And to make her point, Alyssa quotes some people to support her claim. So, Rob Bell, quote, the Bible is a profoundly human book, end quote. Well, isn't it? I'm not sure why any Christian would have a problem with that. It is a profoundly human book. Jesus, too, was profoundly human. See, this quote doesn't really prove anything one way or the other. Actually, if it does anything, if it at least suggests anything, it, it casts some doubt on Alyssa's theological orthodoxy. It seems she has problems with the Bible being profoundly human. But I suspect this quote is less about substance and more just a juicy Rob Bell quote to affirm people's fears, which is to say this is a bit of rhetoric as well. Um, I'm quoted, I'm glad I made the cut, quote, but if we are fixed on the Bible as a book that has to get history right, the Gospels become a crippling problem, end quote. 
See, again, why the alarm? I know a lot of evangelicals who would agree with that statement. The Gospels do, in fact, differ rather remarkably in historical details that simply cannot be harmonized or ignored. I just ask, is Alyssa not aware of this? If we begin by claiming that the Gospels are of necessity accurate historical records because we know God would only speak historically accurately, then the Gospels are going to give you a headache or a faith crisis. And I think these are the types of claims that actually drive people away from faith. Uh, Rachel Held Evans is quoted too, quote, what business do I have describing as inerrant and infallible a text that presumes a flat and stationary earth takes salvation for granted and presupposes patriarchal norms like polygamy, end quote. You know, I don't know, Alyssa, I think these seem like pretty good questions to me that are worth addressing. They are also, in some shape, almost as old as the Christian faith itself. They certainly do not undermine the Bible's reliability, unless one has a view of biblical reliability that is out of sync with much of the history of Christian thought. And not to raise a whole other issue, but it's still worth mentioning. We have to ask, okay, biblical reliability, reliable for what? Is reliable simply something to do with history? Does it presume a a textbook or owner's manual view of the Bible where reliable means fully accurate and always binding information? Or is the Bible reliable in, by God's grace, forming us into people of faith in ways that transcend our tired categories and presumptions of what the Bible has to be? I think the problem here is in presuming the stability, the immutability, actually, of a particular form of inerrancy that most evangelicals I know don't feel is viable. See, when when people point out that the Gospels contradict each other, or Chronicles and Kings contradict each other, or that there are laws in Torah that contradict each other, the quick response is to be accused of denying the Bible's reliability. But I'm not sure if ignoring or papering over the Bible's self-evident behavior is good theology. Thoughtful Christians will engage the issue and not draw lines too quickly. But presuming the non-negotiable inerrancy of Scripture raises significant theological problems, more problems than it solves, which is why you have people questioning evangelicalism's reliability and leaving at the very least, try to appreciate and understand why people struggle with something you might feel is so obviously not a problem. Let me expand that just a little bit, right? It's been said to me when I say, like, I don't believe in inerrancy, I don't think it's true. I, I, I oftentimes hear a response, okay, well, then you're an errantist. See, if you're not an inerrantist, you're an errantist. And gee, you know, who wants to be called that? Well, my response is always the same. No, I'm not an errantist. That's a category mistake. I don't accept that either-or thinking as a starting point. I don't accept the either-or thinking as the premise for discussing the issue of what the Bible is. I think we have to move beyond the rhetoric of reliability versus unreliability as it's been co-opted by the inerrantist agenda. All right, the second main point of the blog post is the problem of evil, which Alyssa acknowledges as a real problem, and it has been for a long time, actually before the biblical period. But anyway, you know, why do really, really bad things happen? 
Yeah, where's God when you need him? It's it's a question of theodicy, really, the defense of God. It's as old as the Bible and Second Temple Judaism. This has been an old, old question. And I do agree with Alyssa on something she says here. She says we should create safe spaces for people to express their doubts on this issue. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But I want to suggest that you can begin creating safe spaces, but not writing blog posts like this that creates very unsafe space by using deconversion language or you're in league with Satan or you're just one turn away on the slippery slope to atheism. And the question I want to ask, not directed towards Alyssa specifically, is, okay, well, how do you handle the problem? And then how do you handle pushback when those answers are shown to be wanting? You know, how do you handle an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and all-loving God and, say, the Holocaust, or being buried alive in a mudslide as you're driving to work, or the countless untold stories of the suffering of people whose names we will never know, who died under the most heinous and horrible circumstances, both in natural disasters or things that humans do to each other. That's got to bother us on some level. The problem of evil isn't going anywhere. I think it's actually, depending on what day of the week it is, I think it's actually the biggest problem that people have in trying to work within a Christian system. And I think this problem is actually minimized in this article. It acknowledges the need to create safe space, but that safe space is probably very small. You can walk outside of that space pretty quickly. Okay, the third point is how progressive Christians like atheists take their morality from changing human cultural standards rather than from the eternal and unchanging standard of the Bible. Now, this section is very brief and focuses on LGBTQ issues, which has certainly caused no little consternation among fundamentalists and evangelicals. And here again, Jen Hatmaker is mentioned, sort of pylon Jen session still at the Gospel Coalition. That's very disappointing. But see, now this immediately raises a question of how Alyssa might deal with the pressing moral challenges that come from the Bible itself like exterminating Canaanites, treating virgin daughters as property, or Israelites dividing among themselves women as spoils of war. Does the Bible not raise moral issues for us rather than simply solving them at every turn? And doesn't our own moment in time, call it culture if you will, doesn't that affect how we process our faith and our here and now moral actions? Let me give an example. Biblically speaking, what do you do with outsiders? Should they be judged and killed by God? Well, that's what Nahum thinks about the Assyrians. And then the book of Jonah comes along a couple of centuries later and says, well, no, maybe God has a place for Assyrians as well. Who knew? See, the issue here is the very thing Alyssa decries. The culture of the time affected how the biblical writers wrote, whether it's Nahum or Jonah. See, they don't have the same opinion on what God thinks of Assyrians. Nahum is writing at the time when Assyria is coming to the end of its power and a pretty horrible reign that the Assyrians had. Jonah is writing at a different time from the point of view of a different culture, a post-exilic culture, where the question of what God thinks of outsiders has shifted probably, I'm guessing, because the Judahites in Babylonian captivity came to see their new neighbors as 
people rather than as the other. The focus of this blog post, however, is on the changing views among Christians on the LGBTQ issue and displaying that change as exhibit A for what happens when you don't listen to the Bible and simply let culture affect your morality. And I think that kind of argument is really the last gasp of inerrancy as a functionally meaningful view of how to look at the Bible. It's the last gap, in my opinion, of seeing the Bible as a rule book that simply gives you moral answers. Just find the verse and do what it says. And that's why any shift in thinking about this issue, as I think we've all noticed, is met with a visceral reaction. I mean, the battle of the Bible was lost with respect to race in the 19th century, and now with respect to women in the church, although there's still diversity in the church about the role of women in the church, but, but it's clear the Bible isn't clear about what to do there. BC, but now we have human sexuality, and the Bible seems to have such clear things to say. Uh, and since the Bible is our moral rule, rule book, we have to stick to it. See, this issue is sort of the Alamo of biblical inerrancy, and I can understand for an inerrantist why this is such an important issue. But the argument that culture should never affect morality is demonstrably false, even within the Bible itself. At the risk of getting into this too deeply and turning this into like a three-day marathon podcast, let me just say that the Bible is replete with examples of how views of many things are directly affected by when and where the biblical authors wrote. The legal tradition in the Pentateuch, actually traditions in the Pentateuch, they differ because of when and where these laws were written. And the Babylonian exile had profound effects on how ancient Jews articulated their ancient faith, including on moral issues. So, you know, to suggest that the Bible has a clear, consistent moral standard free of cultural influences makes me wonder how carefully the Bible has been read. The entire history of Christian and Jewish thought has been engaging this very issue of how to act today, embracing this tradition, but also recognizing that they are embracing it in a very different time and place than when the biblical authors lived. Biblical faith is not one that says retreat to the past. It says respect the past, but live in the present. Okay, how does that work? Well, welcome to Christian theology. That's not an easy question to answer, but it is our sacred responsibility to try. But it's incautious, to say the least, to say, well, you've got a choice. You get your morality from culture or you get your morality from the Bible. That's a false choice. Ironically, it's a false choice that ignores the biblical witness itself. Okay, let me move on now to a brief summation of the blog post by making six brief and interconnected points. They overlap in places. All right, so first, just to reiterate, I think that the argument and the rhetoric of this blog post are spiritually harmful. And Alyssa is not really the focus of the problem here. It's part of the tone and tenor of some forms of evangelicalism and fundamentalism. And I think we have to find different ways to talk about all this. Second, I'm not surprised, but what strikes me is the utter failure of any sense of curiosity and self-criticism. And this gets back to one of the premises. If you hold the truth, there's no need to be curious about how God is moving in the world. We know it. We know biblically. Therefore, self-criticism is not needed. It's off the table. We live to criticize you, not to criticize ourselves. So, we're right and you're wrong, and that's the way it is. I I think there's an arrogance to that. 
and heaven help us all for being arrogant. You know, I hope I'm not being arrogant right now. I don't think I am. I'm just trying to articulate what I think about this approach to theological dialogue. Uh, a third point, I, I see a willful isolation here from larger and older conversations on these issues. I see a naivete and even an ignorance of the beautiful depth of the history of Christian theology and contemporary Christian theology. And I, let me just stop there. I want to be really clear about something. When I say naive and ignorant, I am not in any sense being insulting of anyone because I am naive and I am ignorant of a good many things. Naivete and ignorance are part of human existence. But I think those who are wise will know will know that and, 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 and be able to work within that. But anyway, the, the kind of isolation I see here from the larger conversation, making believe it's not even there, I think that's inexcusable. There can be no dialogue here, only a bunker mentality where all that's needed is apologetics, which is the stated purpose, by the way, of the Gospel Coalition to defend the Christian faith against, well, the Rob Bells or the Rachel Evanses or maybe even the Pete Enses, the, the weak minded, the people who disagree, the people who think differently. And that agenda can only be carried out if you are isolated from global Christianity. Which is to say, here's my fourth point, that what we have here is really a failure to do theology. Theology is all about being in conversation with the world around you and saying, how does God want us to respond to this world around us that we actually live in? And I think, as I never grow tired of saying, that within the Bible itself, you see that creative dynamic. See, what does it mean for God to show up here? Well, just think of Paul. Circumcision and dietary laws moved from non-negotiable commands from God to no longer necessary. Folks, that's a pretty big shift, which happened because Paul's eyes and ears were tuned into the moment. And now you have to think differently about the words of God from the past. See, I think that's a sacred responsibility that Christians have. This is what doing theology means. Theology is not apologetics. True Christian theology is not canon theology, a defense of a theological canon or system. Theology is of necessity and with biblical precedent a creative act, not simply an act of reiteration. I actually think that it's our calling to be theologically creative and imaginative to engage the present in view of the past and the past in view of the present. And my fifth point, as I mentioned before, is that the rhetoric of this post is inexcusable and we should all be willing to call each other out on these sorts of moves. We may not always like hearing it, but we still need to be willing to listen. And I think that rhetorical moves that are aimed only at winning a debate and not actually maturing in faith are a barrier to faith. And then my sixth and, and final summative point is the failure to take responsibility for playing a major role in spawning progressives and atheists, you know, the very thing the Post announces. Again, I can't tell you how many people over the years I've talked to have either left Christianity entirely or have moved on to atheism or very different expressions of Christianity because they've been told that the only real Christianity is what their tradition is curating and that doesn't explain the world they live in. It just doesn't answer the questions that they're asking. All right, so let me conclude with what I think needs to be kept in mind for talking about people moving or progressing or being more creative in their faith or whatever. First of all, I think we need to be more biblical than what this post models. And I said this before, and I'll say it again because I think it's very important. 
within the Bible itself, we can see, without too much searching, writers engaging and adapting, not simply repeating past traditions. To be truly biblical means to embrace that dynamic, that biblical dialogue, and ask ourselves what it means for us to do likewise in our contemporary situation. How can we follow the biblical trajectory here and now? Not by proof texting, not by thinking of the Bible as a rule book, and here are the verses, plain and true, no need for discussion. Now, a lot of people have poured over this stuff and found the Bible has more to it than meets the eye. It's actually beautifully complicated. That's the Bible we have. That's, that's the Bible I love reading. That's the Bible I love trying to understand and passing on to others. To be more biblical doesn't mean finding better verses or arguing verses with each other, but it means really to take that dynamic of engagement to heart, which will yield certainly various points of view, which can certainly be debated and even judged. But I think it's only by accepting this dynamic in the first place that true debate can occur, not by one side nursing predetermined conclusions. The second thing I would like to say is let's be more compassionate, meaning all of us. I know that person X believes certain things that are abhorrent to you, but do you know their story? And what obligation do we have to be Jesus to others rather than demonizing them? See, I wasn't sure what the purpose was of putting Lisa Gunger's recent video promoting her book right smack dab in the middle of this blog post. Was it for the purpose of listening to her story, her experience, and trying to let it affect you? Or was it to look past the humanity and simply show her to be, you know, that person all true believers should shun, or at least can safely ignore? Do you look at that video and see the enemy, or do you look at it as someone who has struggled and is open about it and has processed through it? Be compassionate to Derek Webb. Yeah, even him. Sure. Be compassionate for someone who has become an atheist, perhaps because of something your tribe might have done, knowingly or unknowingly. And rather than pulling out an incendiary quote to shock us, look at what he's saying and put yourself in his shoes. See, he and others like him, they have a story. They may have real reasons for why they're thinking what they're thinking. Another point is to be more open, at least to be willing to be more open to the Spirit of God who moves in ways we don't control, who's beyond us, and who, as the Bible itself shows us, is not limited to the words on the page. I believe God surprises us more than we might think. And that thought is, for me, a a beautiful thing to remember. It's even a comfort knowing that God is not locked into my way of thinking. Thank you, Lord. The the freedom of the Spirit is a proper context for theological discussion and even debate. Let's not assume that God is bound to Bible verses, and certainly not to our interpretation of these verses, but by definition, God has to be above and beyond all of that. And with that, I want to say I love the Bible. I love reading it. I love studying it. I love teaching it. It's a complex book full of spiritual nourishment, but also, if the history of Christian thought has anything to say about it, it's a source of a lot of questions and yields diverse answers. And that's the beauty of it. The Spirit is moving, and it is our responsibility to work out our faith here and now in our circumstances, and not think that the Bible, again, is something like a teacher's edition textbook where we go to the back and find a verse. That is not being obedient to God. That is not being open to God. That is being closed off to God. And along with that, I think humility is something we could all remind ourselves of as 
being pretty important to the Christian faith. Now, I remember in seminary, one of my wonderful professors telling us in class about how he was introduced at a conference. You know, oh, welcome so-and-so, he wrote this and that, he got his PhD from such and such a place, etc. And then at the end, the guy who introduced him added, and he is a humble man. And our professor, and this is one of those unscripted seminary moments that's worth it to the uh, tuition and that sticks with you more than the readings. He looked at us and he said, why did he add that as if it was remarkable? Humility is the most basic trait that Christians should have. It shouldn't need to be said, right? I mean, you shouldn't have to say, oh, by the way, on top of it all, the guy's one of those rare breed humble Christians. You know, as simplistic or even Sunday schooly as it sounds, I think we all have to remember this lesson, myself included. You know, how often do we catch ourselves failing to be humble towards God and towards each other, thinking that we have captured this mystery of faith and are now its custodians? And now it's our job to dispense it on to other people? See, that is not humility. That's not faithfulness. That's pride. And if there's any moral issue that I think Paul talks about as much as any other, and more than most, it's humility. I would say that in forgiveness of others. Those are the things that mark the Christian faith. Okay, now, my last point, and how I would approach all this, is to think of faith as evolving. As I've been saying, true faith never really stands still. That's not remotely a biblical idea, but is contradicted again and again on its pages. You know, is God's purpose for us to remain as we are with no sign of movement, no sign of growth? Are we not human? Are we not always experiencing life and the world we live in and changing? Who of us here listening has not had a shift in faith on the basis of their experience? Just, <laughs> you know, that's just the way it happens. All right, folks, that's why, and I'll end with this, this is why Faith is a journey and not a fortress to be protected. Faith is always engaging and taking responsibility for this journey, and it's a beautiful thing when we sense God's presence with us along the way. Alrighty, that's it for today. Listen, folks, again, I want to thank you for listening. You know, when you download and click play, it's an honor and a wonderful thing for Jared and me to be a part of. And thank you for supporting us just by listening. If you want to support us more, we're on Patreon, and you can find that pretty easily. Just go to patreon.com and put in the Bible for normal people, and you'll find us. And above all, thanks for, you know, the kinds of dialogues we've had at Patreon and just in general on the website, pdens.com, or on Facebook and Twitter. All right, folks, again, thanks for listening, and hope you come by and listen again. See you later.